0: You may have noticed as we were reading that, uh, the, if you grabbed a Bible from, the, from the, the back of the pew, I'm reading out of the ESV today. Um, there's multiple translations into English of the Bible. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, so every English translation is a translation of sorts. Uh, we typically preach out of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, but uh, this week I just liked... Uh, the way the ESV, the English standard, read. And so um, I'll be preaching out of that, but you'll be able to follow along and we'll have it on the screen as well. Um, the specific translating decisions that they made, the words that they chosen to use. So uh, this, as you can tell, is an intense psalm, <laughs> is it not? Uh, this is not um, quite as light of a psalm as I preached two weeks ago about the goodness of God, <laughs> but uh, all the psalms have um, something of an arc to them, and so I want you to uh, listen uh, to, to try to watch the arc of this psalm. This psalm is put in the category of a penitential psalm. Um, there's a few of them, and, and that's a big word, and you don't need to know that word. and Don't worry if you can't spell it. Um, it basically means it's a song of penance, and penance is to have true remorse, true sorrow, true uh, contrition for your sin, and so this this psalm and all the psalms started to of get categorized after the fact by uh, by scholars and whatnot now obviously the authors of the psalms aren 't thinking i 'd like to write a penitential psalm they just they 're writing their songs they 're pouring out their hearts to God, and we as god 's people can follow them as guides. Sometimes we don't even know how to pray. Sometimes when we feel sorrow for our sin or contrition for our sin, we don't know exactly the words. We can just go to the psalms sometimes and just pray these words as our prayer, and God has given us that. And then over time, we might be able to find our own voice in our songwriting, in our prayers of petition, in our prayers of penance to the Lord. So that's what's going on here. This is a penitential song, and So in this way, maybe an easier way to remember it, I call this a song of repentance. So it's a song of repentance. Maybe maybe you didn't hear that when she read it, so we'll read it again, um, because it's kind of hard to tell what's going on. But this is a song of repentance. The flow of the psalm is that David, who is attributed as the author, he recognizes fully his sin. He's not denying it. He's not covering it up. He's not justifying it. He recognizes that he has fallen short of God's call on his life. And so he's fully remorseful. Now, he recognizes that there is in his life a discipline of the Lord or a rebuke of the Lord, that the Bible is consistent, that that is the love of God, Hebrews 12 talks about this, that God will discipline his children as sons and daughters in order that they might turn from the way of wickedness or the way that leads to death towards the way that leads to life. This is loving. And, and so David is not denying that. He's not asking God, like, why are you this kind of God? Why do you discipline? Why do you rebuke? He's just saying, okay, I get it. Can you stop? <laughs> I just, I want you to feel that. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I get it, God. I know that I've sinned. Your wrath is upon me. Your discipline is with me. But now, God, you can stop. I've learned my wayward ways. I acknowledge. I pray now for your mercy and grace. That's what's going on in this psalm. Now, it seems to be that his uh, sin and the discipline of the Lord has led to an actual illness of sorts. He says, My spirit is faint. My bones are weary. He says, I cry myself to sleep because of the pain, because of my fear. And he's not ashamed of that. And he's simply asking God to take it away. Now, one of the things that might come to your mind when I, when I talk about this is, does this mean that every time I experience illness or suffering or pain, that that is God's discipline or rebuke of some sin in my life? And the answer is no. That is not how God always works. That's how we think that God always works. If you know the book of Job, that's what Job's uninformed friends think, uh, that Job has done something wrong and therefore God is punishing him. And it's very clear in Job and other places that is not always the case. But what we do have here in Psalm 6 is a confirmation that sometimes this is the way the Lord works. That there is some sin that then will lead to some illness, which is God's loving discipline on his children that they might turn. And David's not saying, God, how could you be good if you do this? He's saying, you are good. You've helped me to see my error. And I see it. Now please heal me. So I want you to see that. I I I, I want two things. I don't want to fall into two errors, thinking God never does this and that God always does this. God uses a number of ways to correct and to turn the people he loves back to him. Then what seems to be happening is not only is there physical pain, but now there's mockers and scoffers who see David's situation and they're making fun of him. They're either saying something like, you must have sinned real bad for God to treat you like this, which again is an error. Or they're saying something, maybe they're, not religious at all. And they're saying, ha your God? The one you talk of so often? Where is he now? Is he not powerful enough to save you? So there seems to be mockers and scoffers and critics that have come in and they're pressing in on David. And so not only is he experiencing his own physical pain, he's experiencing social pain. And he's bringing all of it to the Lord. It's causing him tears, so much so that his pill- pillow is soaked from those tears. And so he's asking God to hear his plea. And as we'll see, he knows with confidence that God does. So that's sort of like the context and the structure of this. And this is why we call it a song of repentance. Because repentance requires two things. Repentance requires both a changing of your mind and behavior. The Hebrew term for repentance literally means to turn, to turn from, so... Repentance requires that you actually stop doing the thing that you recognize is wrong. So you have to actually turn, either change your mind, you had a wrong thought, or change your action, you had wrong action. But it's not only that, it also includes this idea of true regret, that you experience true sorrow for your sin, that you have true sadness and contrition, that you that you know deep in your soul that you have offended a holy and loving God. And you recognize that. So it's so important, and I think the psalm helps us see the second element of that, more than anything, that true repentance requires a a recognition of the wrongness. And sometimes we think religion is just behavior modification. That is not the fullness of what God is after. Yes, he does desire that we would walk in ways of life and not ways of death. But he requires that our heart be transformed in the process. This is why this is a song of repentance. David's heart is being changed as he brings fullness, the fullness of his sorrow, to the throne of God. And he expectantly knows that God will hear his prayer. So it's beautiful. Um, If you've not experienced this kind of repentance, you're missing out on the greatest of joys. I've got a couple quotes for you that talk about the joy of repentance. So in a way, even though this is a song about tears and praying your tears, we'll talk about that in a second, it's actually a song about the joy of salvation, that when we come to God honestly and acknowledge with true contrition and, and repentance, the thing that rides on the tail of that is true joy. And you may have heard people talk about the joy of repentance, and you think, how? Repentance? That's terrible. That's terrible well, they're not actually encountering the true gospel of Jesus Christ or the true person of Jesus or the true nature of God. And we're, 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 we're talking about that through these psalms, that the true nature of God is that he's a God of mercy and grace. So if you don't understand these quotes I'm about to make, um, don't feel bad about it. Ask God to reveal to you the thing that these fellow believers have experienced. And perhaps part of it is that you are not seeing your sin in the way they are. Or you're not seeing the cross of Christ in the way they are. And so, let me just read these for you, and then I'll let you wrestle with it for a sec. Here we go. Here's some quotes about repentance. First one, by a guy named John Donay. Here we go. Every man, or woman, feels more comfort and spiritual joy after true repentance for a sin than he or she did in the innocence before he or she committed the sin. See what he's saying? He's saying, even if you had never fallen short in this particular way, you would not experience the joy that I now feel having fallen short, but then seeing God's grace and mercy, pick me up, give me full forgiveness, and say to me, it is well, child. You see that? And so some of us fight so hard to not sin, which is good. (laughs) Paul says in the New Testament, don't just sin as much as you can so you can experience all that joy of repentance. That's not what I'm saying. But when you actually acknowledge it and own it and don't run for it and say sorry to God and truly mean it, the joy of repentance of him saying you are forgiven in Christ is a joy that you cannot experience even by living a perfect life, which of course none of us can. And if you've never experienced that, you're missing either something about your own personhood and something about your own sin or you're missing something about the personhood of God and, and the work of the cross. So we keep considering and we dig in and we try to understand how could they say things like this. Here's another quote. Matthew Holland says this. The very purpose of repentance is to take certain misery and transform it into pure bliss. I say, what? What is he talking? Certain misery... And transform it into pure bliss. What he's saying is, when you recognize what sin actually is and what it does, and the way that it chips away at your soul, and it turns you into something that you don't actually want to be, when you recognize that, the horror of that, the recognition of that, and you fall upon the grace and mercy of God, the bliss replaces the misery. But you've got to understand that there's misery coming. That's part of repentance, is you get, oh my goodness, I was wrong about this. Couldn't see it. And so you thank God both for the eyes to see the bad news that misery is coming and the good news that doesn't have to come because of Christ. Bliss. How could he say that about repentance? Here's another one. Todd Christopherson said this, whatever the cost of repentance, it is swallowed up in the joy of of forgiveness, So he's honest. There's a cost to repentance. There's a cost of standing before God. And if, if you can't quite grasp that, and if you're married, say, standing before your spouse and saying, I was wrong. There's a cost to that. Or your best friend, I was wrong. Or your brother or your sister, I was wrong. Right? There's a cost to that. That's why it's so hard. <laughs> and it starts early being hard. Our son Grayson cannot li- literally, I think... He can't say the word sorry. Like, you can tell he's sorry in his eyes. Like, he's just, his eyes are telling him, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I'm saying Just say it. <laughs> he's like, he can't do it. Like, why is that? Do you have that problem? I have that problem. That is a hard, why is that word so hard to say? Because there's a cost to it. There's a cost of truly accepting your wrong. Accepting the fact that the way you acted hurt someone else. The way you acted hurt God. That costs something, so we don't want to, we're not going to minimize repentance. Repentance costs a lot, so you know, I gotta push my chips in the table with God, and it it could cost me everything, and as soon as I push that in, what Christofferson says is it's swallowed up in the joy of forgiveness. You push all your money into the table and say, God, it's all yours. He pushes his chips all on the table. Dave, it's all yours. That's the gospel. It's swallowed up. I love that word. It's, once it, you experience it, you're like, what, what took me so long? The cost of it was so small compared to the gain of getting God back in my life. Of knowing that I'm forgiven. That, of knowing that my future is with him. What... what it's swallowed up. It's, it's, it's gone. Have you had that experience? The cost is real. I get that. But once you give it all, it's swallowed up by the joy of forgiveness. I want you to have that. Let me read you one last quote. This is by a guy named David Wilkerson. He says this, most Christians never associate joy with repentance, but repentance is actually the mother of all joys. In Jesus, key phrase, in Jesus. Without it, there can be no joy. Without repentance. Yet any believer who walks in repentance will be flooded with the joy of the Lord. I love that. Because what do we see in this psalm? The tears of the contrite flood their pillows. The pain... Of the discipline of the Lord leads to the tears that flood the pillow. The, the the pain of the injustice of the mockers leads us to tears that flood the pillow, and God turns the flooding of tears into the flooding of joy. This is the way it works for the people of God. And if you've never experienced that, if that feels so distant, keep moving towards God. Keep considering his gospel. Keep considering the cross of Christ. Keep considering the resurrection. We'll talk about that in a bit. Keep considering who this God really is if you've never experienced the flooding of joy replacing the flooding of tears. I want that for us. I want more of that for myself. To be honest, I do not cry enough tears in the presence of God. That's my, that's my bet. Maybe you have a different bet. My guess is maybe you don't cry enough when you come and sing about the goodness of God in worship. When you come to the table and you see that God gave his life for you. You don't cry enough, probably, is my guess. So there's some type of a blockage that you're not experiencing the flooding of joy that comes with the recognition of salvation. The song of repentance always leads to the joy of salvation. Always. So we've got to learn how to sing this song. So If you're not crying tears of joy as God turns your tears of sorrow into the joy of salvation, you need to just hunker in here on Psalm 6 and say, what is going on? How does this happen for David? Because I want to to make something clear. He's not writing this after the pain has gone away. He's still, it seems, there's psalms where he's clearly writing in retrospect I believe this song is, it's only ten verses. He didn't come in after the fact and like, God did this and so now I'll write this. I think he wrote it in the moment. We'll talk about why I believe that. But this is not, this is like in process. The pain's still there, the mockers are still there, but yet he can turn his tears into tears of joy. How do we do that? So we're going to look at, long introduction. Praying your tears. That's what we're going to talk about. How do you pray your tears to God? An encounter through repentance. Encounter or re-encounter encounter the mercy and grace of God. That's what we'll be talking about today. So that we might see an experience afresh. This doesn't just happen once. This happens again and again. The joy of salvation. You ready? It's all about Posture. What is the posture that we see from the psalmist? I think there's three things I'd like to just point out. What is the posture that you see? The posture of the penitent. The first thing, it's childish. And I mean that in the best possible way. There's obviously parts of being childish that are negative. Let's talked about it with Grayson. But there's a part of being childish that is beautiful, and Jesus himself says, unless you become like one of these children, you'll never enter my kingdom. That's a hard saying. What does he mean? What is the best part of being childish that each and every believer, no matter your IQ, no matter how much money you have in the bank, you have to figure out in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's what I'm talking about here. And I think the thing we see from David here that's, that's so beautiful, but that we actually miss and we think it's wrong, is that he's... Selfish. Selfish. He's selfish. What do I mean by that? He doesn't take from God, but he asks God for what he needs. And he he doesn't even cover it up with all these these, uh, caveats and this and that. He just goes straight at it. What do I mean? What does he say? He says, God, stop! I've had enough. If you've been around children, they have no problem asking you to stop discipline them. (laughs) They're like, I got it, as soon as they get it. So he just straight up says, stop, God. He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't try to make an argument of, you know, my sin wasn't that bad. Please stop. He just says, I've had enough. Please stop. This is how a child speaks to their parent. How could they speak like this? Because they know the parent loves them. Now maybe you came out of an abusive relationship with your parent, and maybe you don't experience that kind of bold honesty and selfishness because you don't know that they love you and trust you, so you don't actually speak your mind and ask them to stop. But we recognize that as brokenness because the way a child and a parent should relate is that the child gets to say and ask whatever they actually want, knowing that the parent will only give them what is good for them. David knows that. He knows that his God can do the filtering. So he says, I want you to stop. But he's fine if God says, nope, you need to suffer a little longer. But he asks, stop. And then he says, how long? Look at that with me. Look at where he says, how long? He says that in verse 3. He says, my soul is also, also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Now, you might be asking yourself, finish the sentence. (laughs) How long till what? How long till when? How long of what? David doesn't need to ask or explain. He knows that God knows him so well that God knows what the how long is about. If you were taking a road trip with a child, like 10 seconds into the car ride, how long? Like they don't even know where we're going. (laughs) Like we're literally, this happened the other day, we were literally going, it was a one minute drive, we got in the car, how long till we get there? (laughs) I was like, well, do you know where we're going? No, but how long? I'm tired, I'm ready to be out of the car. Children do this because they trust their parents so unabashedly. That they just say what's on their mind, and they're free to share their pain. Even if the pain, even if they're a little weak, a little soft. Doesn't seem like that's David's problem. But a child can ask how long. Without context, without arguing, just saying how long. This is a child asking a parent. I just love that, that posture. Do you have that posture when you pray to God? Or do you feel like you always have to put the caveats on? God, how long? Because you know me, and you know this, and you know that, and I don't know if I can handle it much longer. You don't have to say that to God. You just say, how long? God knows what you mean by that. And you know that he'll make the how long exactly how long it needs to be. But it's okay for you to just say how long. It's okay for you to ask God, please stop all in the process of praying your tears to Him. And He'll be able to distinguish if these are healthy tears, or as we'll talk about in a second, manipulative tears. Like with my boys, I can always tell if the tears are tears of manipulation, or of self-pity, or of self-will, or if they're tears of repentance, tears of true pain. Like I can tell, literally, like, if you're a parent or an auntie, and an uncle, can you tell, like, by the tone of the children in your life? Just raise your hand if you can tell the tone, what kind of tears. Okay. Yeah, so if we can do that as finite human beings, do you think God can differentiate what kind of tears we're, pre- we're crying to him? Of course he can. So we can, we can ask him to stop, but if, if we're not all, all, all the way there yet, if we haven't truly understood why he's doing this, what corrective he's trying to create in our life, He'll let us go. So press into your tears. Let your tears, as we'll talk about in a second, turn from maybe selfish tears in the worst way to selfish tears in the best way, which is just saying, God, I get it. I know, and I'm ready to change. I'm ready to turn. I'm ready to give this part of my life to you. But you've got to go through that process, and God will know when you're ready. So the first posture is one of of being like a child, Of God in the best possible way, knowing that you can trust God, and so you pray exactly what's on your heart. The second posture is an honest posture. So it's related, but kids aren't always honest, so there's being honest with God. So there's no justifying here, right? David doesn't say, you know, you shouldn't have have punished me like that because it wasn't so bad what I did. He says, there's no justifying. There's no denying it. It's like, there's no, you know, but you should have seen what he did first. Yeah, I I punched him in the face, but you know, you know, he said that. No, he doesn't deny it. He doesn't blame other people. He's honest. And he's also honest about his own physical pain. Are you honest with God about your weakness and your pain? Or do you feel like you have to come to God with this type of faith that says, God, I feel no pain, but please stop. Of course you feel pain. Of course he has both physical pain, it seems, and social pain, emotional pain. He brings all types of pain to God and says, God, this hurts, and I'm your child. I love that. Sometimes we we, we like to pretend with God that we're tougher than we are. You don't need to do that with God. He knows exactly how tough you are. And he's not impressed. (laughs) Okay? He's like, you don't need to impress me. I understand. Nothing to prove here. So let's be honest. And this allows our tears to be true tears of repentance that leads to joy of salvation. As I was thinking about this, I actually just... To be honest, you can go compare notes because no two sermons are the same. I preached this sermon last week when I was guest preaching at Central Community Church, our sister church on Capitol Hill. I didn't share this story. This story came to me after the fact, but I'm going to share it with you. And I asked permission from Allie, my wife, to share this story. Um, About a month into dating, and and we we moved pretty quick because we met... um, Promoting the Consider Concert. Before we started the church, we started these concerts called the Consider Concert. Showbox Theater, uh, the first year, the Moore Theater, second year. This was the second year of the concert, and I got her name from a family friend uh, because she had done college ministry here in the city, and I was just trying to get as many people um, aware of the concert as possible. I met her, fell in love with her in in the first 30 seconds. Took her about 30 years, but (laughs) which means we're not there yet. By the way, Friday was my ten-year anniversary with Allie. <laughs> Pray for her, encourage her. This is a tough road for her, but um, so so because we were talking about the mission of God and we were bearing our souls to one another, our relationship ramped up super fast. And in the in the in about a month in, we were we were driving somewhere, and I still remember it. And she um, had just finished crying and sharing her heart with me. And she stopped and she said, Dave, I just need you to know this. She said, it's been about seven years since I cried in front of someone. And this is my first thought. Oh no, I broke it. (laughs) That was my first thought. And the reason I thought that I'd broken it it being her, is because this was probably the 50th time that she'd cried in front of me in a month. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've created a leak. <laughs> Whatever I did, that was my first thought. My second thought was the correct thought. One, I, I realized, and my heart broke for her because what I was experiencing, these are general numbers by the way, so she'll probably, you, you get the idea. What I realized is that in many of her relationships, particularly relationships with other guys, she was unable to be honest for, her, for seven years. So my second thought was I was incredibly honored that she trusted me with her honest tears. I hadn't broken her. I had just been safe enough for her to be honest. And as she cried tears that had probably been built up for years and years, guess what started to happen? These are honest tears. She started to heal. She started to heal. And I got to be there. And I'm still there. And there'll be more tears. And she cries them to me more than anybody. It's such an honor to get to be that one person. And I thank God it's not always easy but this is how God feels with us when we are honest with Him and we bring our real tears, of our real pain, and our real loneliness to Him that we would trust Him so much. This is such a joy for God. And it ultimately leads to our joy because He doesn't disappoint, He doesn't run away. They aren't too much for Him. And so we come with an honest posture of I'm broken God and I need you to heal me and God loves that he loves to get to be that person in our life the third posture is one of um, seeing your tears that you cry to God as constructive So it's childish it's honest but it's also constructive what do I mean by that He's using his, uh, are you using your tears, like Allie was with me, are you using them to move you forward to something better? Do you have this idea that when you're honest with God and you bring your request to Him, that you're want him, wanting Him to move you somewhere that you not, are not yet? This is why I like to say that. Are your tears fuel for a journey? And if you allow your tears to be fuel for a journey, then God will bless those tears. If, on the other hand, you're simply crying your tears to cry your tears, but you have no thought of, God, I want you to move me forward, then you won't experience the joy of salvation. If your tears become fuel for the journey, then that journey ultimately will lead you to the joy of salvation that we see David, the psalmist, getting to here, right? Like, it's a journey. It's a 10-verse journey that he's walking us along with him. But if we don't want that end goal, if we don't want to experience the joy of salvation, and we just want to cry our tears, then we are using our tears in an unhealthy way. So I want to help us to see the healthy way to use our tears and the unhealthy way to use our tears. And I get a lot of this from uh, a little study guide that I found from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Love that New York City. Great city. So let me read you. Um, in this study guide, uh, they talk about three positive ways to cry and three negative ways to cry. So the, I'll, I'll start with the positive, and we see them all in the psalm. The first is, Uh, Crying tears of loss and grief. Loss and grief. God receives those and he can use those to move you towards the joy of salvation. So, loss and grief. So, we see that in verses 2 and 3. David is crying the tears of pain and loss. He's lost uh, his vitality, he's lost his strength, and he cries those tears to God. His bones, he says, are, are literally troubled. He cries those tears to God. God says, those are tears that I can use on this journey. The second type of tear that's healthy is a, joy, uh, a tear of sympathy for hurting or injustice, even if that injustice is towards yourself. So we see David crying tears of, for the injustice he's experiencing from those mockers who are misrepresenting his situation, who are using it as an advantage for their own gain, and he's crying tears. He's like, God, this is not just, this is not fair, this is not right that they, would, that they would see my pain and use it against me. It's unjust. So whether it's our own injustice or we see the injustice in our world, tears that we cry over that are tears God used, can use to fuel the journey. So those are good tears. The third type of tear is a tear of repentance and regret. So we see here David. He recognizes his sin. He cries tears over his own sin as he has offended his creator and God who loves him so dearly. We see that in the psalm. So we see healthy tears here. Now, there are unhealthy ways to cry. I'm not saying crying is unhealthy. I hope that's clear. I'm asking you to cry more. But crying in a healthy way. There are unhealthy ways. And often, the unhealthy ways of crying sort of ride on the tail end of healthy ways. So it might start as healthy tears over loss and pain, but then it, it at some point it's hard to determine when it moves into something else. So an unhealthy way or an unhealthy reason for crying is self-pity. So imagine you lose something or someone and the tears that you're crying, the pain you've experienced is real and you're crying and your tears, but then at some point, and you might not be aware of it, that turns to self-pity. And now, you're living in that, oh, woe is me, only bad things happen to me, I never can catch a break, God must really hate me. See that self-pity? And you're using your tears as your comforter, instead of God as your comforter. Because God is a God of salvation. God is a God of resurrection. God is a God of new life despite death. And so if you get stuck in the self-pity of woe is me, of I'm the victim, it's always everything bad's happening to me, it's not honest. You're not allowing God to use your legitimate tears of pain and grief to move you towards the joy of salvation. You're refusing because you love those tears. You see that? Man, I've been there. I have been here crying tears of self-pity for a number of things. We don't have time (laughs) to get into all of them. So I've been here, I get that. The second thing is tears of manipulation, okay? So your tears can become, at some point, you maybe begin to cry tears that are legitimate. Maybe you see some injustice in the world. Maybe you've experienced some injustice and you're crying tears over that. And you recognize how effective those tears are to get what you want. And so you learn how to turn them on, just like my son, Owen. He knows how to turn them on. Wow. He can be a very successful actor one day, because actors are paid to deceive (laughs) through crying on demand. Now, when you're a kid, you can kind of tell when people are doing it, but when you're really good at it, that's when they pay you millions of dollars to do it in front of the camera. Seriously, you, you stop... You might even not know you're doing it because you've gotten so good at doing it. God says that's unhealthy. To use your tears, the biological gifts I've given you, in order to manipulate the situation is not going to lead to the joy of salvation. We see it all the time. We see it in politics. We see it um, in our personal lives. How people have mastered the technique of using tears to manipulate. God says, not in my house. The third thing, the tears of self will. Self will. What do we mean by that? We are crying because someone has crossed our will. Again, you see that this is the worst part of children. You see it all the time. I didn't get what I wanted, and now I turn on the waterworks. It's actually tears of anger. How could somebody get in the way of what I wanted? And I'm angry. And I have fury. And so I cry because somebody didn't let me get what I wanted. These are unhealthy. Because you are not submitting your will to God's will. God has a plan for you that includes something so much better than whatever you think you need in this moment. So if you pray your tears, it will keep you from these malfunctions because you might not be able to see them. So you pray your tears to God first and you ask him to refine and ask him, hey, is this just me being frustrated that I'm not getting what I want? Is this just me being, uh, uh, experiencing self-pity? Is this just me manipulating? God, help me. Are these tears from you? Can you use these for fuel for the journey? Or are these something else? Praying your tears to God through prayer is such a helpful way to live honestly in God's world for His mission and His purpose. What do you think about that? Do you do that? Man, I was challenged this, this week and last week since i preached this now twice. I don't pray my tears to God well. There's a quote here by Eugene Peterson, author of the Message Version of the Bible, amongst other things, great pastor, theologian. He says this He says, Tears are a biological gift of God. They are a physical means for expressing emotional and spiritual experience. But it is hard to know what to do with them. If we indulge our tears, we cultivate self pity. If we suppress our tears, we lose touch with our feelings. But if we pray our tears, we enter into sadness, or sorry, we enter into sadness that integrates our sorrows with the Lord's sorrows and discover both the source of and the relief from our sadness. That's a beautiful picture of what we're talking about here. If I pray my tears in an honest, childlike way, I'm not going to accidentally suppress them and become feelingless in the world, and I'm not going to be overwhelmed by them and become full of self-pity. I'm going to actually find how my sorrow, which is true and legitimate and right and a part of living in God's world, how it connects to the sorrow of our Lord. Jesus is known as the man of sorrows because he took upon himself the sin of the world. He, he literally cried... Drops of blood, hours before he gave his life for ours. Weeping is not wrong. But those were not tears of self-pity. Those were tears of of sorrow for the brokenness of the world, the injustice of the world, and the cost that it would take to make things right. Those are the kind of tears we pray. I think most of us probably need to cry more to connect with the sorrow of our Lord. How long? How long? It's good to pray that prayer. We have a story. I'm going to have to paraphrase. We have a story in Luke that gives us a great picture of praying. I've got to read it. Okay, we have a story in Luke that's <laughs> a great picture of weeping. Weeping in a healthy and effective way. Forget about that. Healthy and effective way. It's going to be in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And the context is that uh, Jesus has been invited over to um, a dinner party by some Pharisees. The Pharisees probably were like the mockers and the scoffers that David's talking about. Hyper-religious people thought they were best, thought they'd never sinned. They never experienced the joy of salvation because they thought they were following the law perfectly. And so you get Jesus uh, is invited over and the story picks up here verse uh, chapter 7 verse 36 says this and again I'm reading from the ESV we'll have it on screen one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and he went into the Pharisees house and reclined at the table now what you gotta know about reclining at the table they didn't sit in chairs at least in the places of honor they would sit on pillows you may be seen this and so their their arm would be sort of closest to the food in the table and their feet would kinda be hanging out the back away from the table so that's, what the, that's the picture I want you to have in your head. They're reclining there. And it says this, And behold, you hear behold, you would be like, Out of nowhere, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, special perfume that would be often used to anoint people's head because it smelled good because people didn't bathe as often uh, as we do now, or at least as some of us <laughs> do now. And, and so it was very common when you'd go into somebody's house that they would anoint you with oil so that you smell nice and you feel good um, before you eat dinner. So she grabs her ointment, which for her probably was her most prized possession, and she brings it into the house. And it says, standing behind him, that's Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and her head the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet, and then she anointed his feet with the ointment. Just picture this. It doesn't seem like she was invited to the party. (laughs) All the context clues are, we don't hang out with people like that. She's a woman of the city. Prostitute. How she got in, I don't know. They They didn't lock the doors back then. She walks in. She's brought her most prized possession. And literally, she's flooding Jesus' feet with her tears. She's weeping these tears. She's praying these tears. Why? She's seen God in the flesh. She's heard the message of Jesus, that no one is too far from the grace and mercy of God. And now she hears he's eating at this Pharisee's house. I live in this city. I could actually see him and touch him and thank him for what I know he's about to do, even though he had not yet done it, that he would take away the sin of the world, including my sin, and there's nothing that could keep me from the love and the grace of God. Oh, my goodness. And she's weeping, and she's flooding his feet that would be dirty and dusty from walking in sandals on unpaved roads. And she's cleaning his feet, and she's wiping it with her hair. And she's on a journey of experiencing the joy of salvation that comes only in Jesus. And it's so beautiful. And she cries enough tears that it seems to get all the dirt off. And so she takes the ointment and she rubs it in her hands and she begins to rub it on Jesus' feet. Why his feet? Probably because she knows she is not worthy to touch his head. And so she blesses Jesus because she has been blessed. Oh. Right? Right? And so what, what happens? The Pharisees see this and, and they connect their heart to this beautiful joy of salvation and they say, oh, what an amazing thing Jesus is going to do. Spoiler alert, that is not what happens. Let's keep reading. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited Jesus saw this, this beautiful, amazing act of repentance, the Pharisee said to To himself. (laughs) This is key. To himself. If this man were a prophet, speaking of Jesus, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. So he thought that in his head. This is the problem when you're playing baseball with Jesus. He's thinking in his head, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said this, Simon, that's the Pharisee's name, Simon, Simon. I have something to say to you. (laughs) And he answered. Simon answered, Say it, teacher. See, Simon still doesn't know or believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. So Jesus says this. He doesn't rebuke right away, he says this instead. He he tells a story. He says, There was a certain moneylender who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. One denarii is like a day's wages, so 500 days of wages. One owed 500 days of wages, and the other 50 days of wages. When they could not pay, he, that's the moneylender, canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon the Pharisee answered, Well, obviously, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them down with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many... Jesus says, of course I know who she is. I'm God. I know exactly what she's done. And her sin is great. She's the 500 denarii person. It's true. She's sinned more than you. I know exactly who she is. Her sins are many. And they are forgiven, he says. For she loved much. She loved too much? Jesus. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Who's that? Simon, the Pharisee. And he said to her, turns to the woman, Jesus turns to the woman and says to her, my daughter, I'm adding that in, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Praise God. This is how God relates to us. Are you the five hundred denary person? Your sins are forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Are you the fifty denary person? Your sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ on the cross. But sometimes, if you've been forgiven little, you'll love little. When we pray our tears to God, He'll turn the sorrow for sin, into the joy of salvation. It's the most beautiful transaction. Only God can give it, only God can do it, but he will turn all tears into joy one day. And this is my final point. We can read this psalm and whatever we're going through, whatever tears we're tearing, whatever illness we have, no matter how close to death we may be, forgot to mention that. <laughs> I got to tell you about this. Super quick. I'm so sorry. This is the funniest part of the psalm. Do you see what he did? I didn't even mention this. He says, I thought about it when I thought of death. He said, God, save me. I'm so close to death. Deliver me from life. He said, this is verse 4. He says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Save me for the sake of your steadfast, what a weird way to say it. Don't save me because of your steadfast love, but for the sake of your steadfast love. What is he talking about here? Keep reading. He says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, which is the Jewish idea of hell, in Sheol, this place where God is not. It's a place of souls waiting. Who will give you praise? That's what he's 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 doing what a great child does. He's negotiating with his father. Now, Father, I know that you care about people knowing about your goodness and grace and mercy. I know that. I see it. I see that you are, like, into telling people the good news. But if you don't save me in this illness that, yes, I get is part of my discipline, and I brought it on myself. If you don't save me from that, how am I going to be able to tell people about your goodness and grace if I'm in Sheol? It's very clever. I love it when my kids are clever. They're like, Okay. You're going to be able to make it in the world. But he's, he's negotiating with God based on God's own character. And his character is he is incredibly jealous for his name, his reputation, that others would know about his mercy and grace. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, save me, not because I deserve it, because none of us do, but save me for the sake of your hesed love. It's the Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed means steadfast, never-ending, unfailing. It's more like, it's covenant love. It's, it's less about a feeling and more about it. When God commits to us, he commits to us. It's an amazing kind of love. And, God's, and, and the psalmist says, I know you want people to know about that, and I could tell them about it if you just save me from death. Beautiful. Are you jealous to proclaim the mercy and grace of God? Take this into your prayer. God, save me from this thing so that I could go tell people of your goodness and grace. It's a beautiful way to pray. God's not manipulated by it. God's not like, oh, you tricked me into... No, he, he's like, yep, you're right. I, I do love people knowing about my mercy and grace. That's kind of what I'm up to. I want people to know who I really am. And so that's a great... I'm, it's probably why I'm going to hear your prayers. <laughs> because you get it. It's for the sake of... That's the glory of God in the world. That's why God saves. We are the beneficiaries But he is maximizing his glory, his reputation, so that all people would come to him and receive him once again if they've walked away. So we need to be jealous for the name of God. And we need to understand that our prayers should be geared towards asking God to save us for the sake of his reputation in the world. So pray that prayer to God. God, save me, and I'll tell people about your power, about your mercy, about your grace. That's a great way to pray to God. So I wanted to say that because we have to be fully aware that our God and being one of his people is that we are people of... He's a God of the cross and the resurrection. He's a God of death and life, meaning he uses death to bring about a greater life. And we are people of the cross and the resurrection, meaning we understand the need for the cross so that we can experience the resurrection. And that's how all this thing works together It's the linchpin Look at verses 9 and 10 9 and 10 says this The Lord Well, start in 8 He says Depart from me, all you workers of evil All you mockers and scoffers For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping The Lord has heard my plea The Lord accepts my prayer All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled They shall turn back and be put to shame In a moment So what's he doing here? This is the crux of the whole thing. He gets that God is a God of resurrection. Now, he, didn't, he hadn't witnessed and experienced and heard of the resurrection of Jesus yet, but he knows that's the kind of God he's worshiping. Now, we have the privilege of knowing about the resurrection. The actual uh, verb here for has heard, which you see it twice, is actually in, the, it's in the, um, uh, the perfect tense, which in Hebrew, me, it, it, the better translation would be, The Lord is hearing my plea. I think it's still happening. I don't think he's been saved yet. The Lord is hearing my plea. The Lord is accepting my prayer. He has so much confidence in who God is that even before the pain goes away he knows God is hearing. He has so much confidence in God that even though he's feeling the pain, even though he's hearing the scoffers, he knows that God is going to hear his prayer and respond. Respond how? Exactly as God should. And so he can now pray in response to his mockers. Only time will tell. We're good. God's hearing my prayer. He's accepting my repentance. He will respond. Now, sometimes God responds by taking away this illness and death in this life, sometimes he responds in the next. We know that as people of the resurrection. So, as I was. Um, Preparing for this, I I I just thought about the disciples, and I thought about this prayer. I don't know if it came to their mind or not, but they had this big swing. They were following Jesus. They were believing he was the Messiah, and then he died on the cross. Imagine that Saturday of tears. Imagine the agony and the pain. Everything that they had hoped for, they weren't. It felt like it was over. Their bones were probably aching. Their pillows were probably soaked with tears but then comes Sunday and in a moment right? Mary Magdalene, probably the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair was walking from the tomb that was now empty but she still didn't know why and she's walking through and all of a sudden she hears a voice from behind her a a man's voice that says Mary and she turns and in a moment (laughs) the tears are gone and now they're tears of joy when the disciples are sitting in the room and they're in agony and they're wondering what to do next and what have we done with our lives and we've sold our businesses and and then in a moment they turn and they see Jesus and now they weep tears of joy for the people of the cross and the resurrection we weep both kinds of tears tears of sorrow for our sin sorrow for the brokenness, sorrow for death. But in a moment when we understand that God has raised Jesus Christ, his son, to life, those tears of pain always turn to tears of joy. When God reminds us of who he is, when our confidence raises now like the psalmist to, I know God hears my plea, and he will respond now or then. God can always take us on that journey, So we bring our tears to him. Like a child with great honesty and confidence, we come to God and we say, God, I know you hear me. Help me. Help me return to the joy of your salvation. And he'll do that. He'll do that in some ways now, and we know in in one way in the end when the kingdom of God comes to, to earth as it is in heaven. When all injustice is wiped from the face of the earth, when no pain and suffering no uh, exists no more. When our sin is taken completely away, including our sinful flesh, as far as the east is from the west. We know that day's coming because of the resurrection. And so we pray confidently now, knowing God will answer our prayer for help. In the way he knows best. And we trust him, however he answers. Because of the resurrection. That's the great joy of this psalm. But I would be amiss if I didn't just give one quick warning because it seems clear that not everyone experiences this same joy when they hear the voice of Jesus and turn in a moment and see him. Verse 10 says all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I was thinking about you know, like a baseball game or something where a military personnel has come back from deployment to reunite with their family. We've all probably seen that scene. And by now, it's like the family should know it's going to happen. Why are they inviting me to a free baseball game and telling me to stand, you know, in the middle of the field? <laughs> it's like, and my, my mom or my dad is in the military. Like, you know it's going to happen. But they still are excited, okay? And in that moment, they turn and they see and, and all that angst, that they felt missing their loved one is now turned to sheer joy right what i was thinking about is like the bible teaches us that every single human being will experience resurrection not not just those who trust in jesus in this life but those who trust in themselves in this life or some other god in this life all of us will experience a resurrection and have that moment where in a moment we turn And we see Jesus for who he actually is. This is why we do what we do. This is why we proclaim the good news. This is why we try to teach people about who Jesus is. Now, so that they don't have that moment. And when they turn, it's not tears of sheer joy. It's tears of sheer terror. Because everybody's having that moment. The psalmist says it. Scripture says it. We'll all be raised and we'll all stand before Jesus one day. And so we tell people about who he is and what he's done so that they can have the confidence to follow him in this life. And if you haven't seen who he is, don't stop searching. Don't stop considering because that moment is coming and there'll be a moment of, of joy or, as the psalmist says, a moment of shame. And God is not a God of shame. God is a God of joy, and I want you to have it. So search for him now rather than then. Let's pray.